Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. A young student in Marsin, Turkey, thought she'd go into the hospitality industry, though everything she'd learned from growing up steered her away from it. She loved the idea of traveling in Europe, especially Germany. She even studied German for five years to improve her chances of getting into the business there. And then one day I was watching this commercial. It was a Royal Caribbean cruise ship, and it was showing Miami, South Beach. I'm like, oh my God, I was like... Wow, look at this. This is something so different. I have to be there. I have to see this. I have to experience this. And then one night, I told my mom, my sister said, I'm not going to Germany. I'm going to America. (laughs) And they're like, what? But the young woman, Ikai Suchtu, had a problem. For a hospitality job in Florida, you'd need to be able to speak the language there. And back then, I didn't know any English. This didn't slow her down, however, and she found an agency who lined up a job interview for a hotel on the east coast of the state. The first hotel called me for an interview. It was a fiasco. It went down the hill. I couldn't say a word. I was like, okay, I don't understand what these people are saying, and nothing happened. I still can't fathom what she expected. She didn't understand a word of English. But she was nevertheless unfazed. I'm very stubborn, very stubborn, and I never gave up. I'm very passionate about my plans for my future. I just didn't want to be in Turkey. I wanted to get out of my comfort zone and do something different and that I can be proud of myself and my family can be proud of me as well. Um, My father passed away when I was 18, and I really didn't get much opportunity to connect with him so much. So... Before he passed away, I told him, like, you'll see, I'm going to do something really different. You're going to be proud of me. And then he said, I believe in you because it's in you. See, this is what I love about certain humans. She didn't listen to common sense. 
which would be to stay on course and go to Germany or suck it up and stay in Turkey. She had a vision and she determined to make it happen. She did what a natural born cook does by nature. In Chef Brian Polson's words, adapt, persevere, and overcome. Yes, this time I had a plan. I had to get my uh, friend who is an English teacher back home and I had to use her talents or skills to get the visa to come to the United States. If you didn't completely catch that, Ikai's friend would be impersonating her on her job interview while Ikai listened in. It went something like this. That's it's ringing and shut up in Turkish. Hello, may I speak with Ilkay Sutagu, please? It's pronounced Sutagu. Yes, this is Ilkay. Just a few easy questions to begin. Do, do you have a hospitality degree? Yes, I study food and beverage. What do you love I... about hospitality? I love taking care of other others people. That's and great, that's great. And, and what are the four values of great hospitality management? Oh, one minute, please. There was a lot of like one minute games. No breaking, no connection, sorry, can't hear you. And she just keeps saying that, and then she would whisper it to me, like, what do I say? What is it? This is what they're saying. And I would just scratch and chicken switch. And then she'll get that piece of paper and trying to read my handwriting. And she's like, what is this? And then she will whisper, what word is this? <laughs> so at some point we were like muted and then take a pause for like a quick 10 seconds. And it would be like, I told you this, you say this and da 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 And it goes and then, okay. Hi. Yes. I think my connection is better if I stand right here. Can you hear me now? I, I suppose that sounds about the same, yeah. Okay, good. So the four values of hospitality management are service, consistency, resourcefulness. Unbelievably, unable to speak the language and with no real training in a kitchen or a dining room, she got the job. Everything that happened through my life, it wasn't always a plan. It was something happened naturally, authentically, and I had to come up with a plan and do something in that moment and really go for it. Because if I was sitting here and planning for days and months, it would probably lost what's the meaning of. And I didn't want to lose that. Welcome to the final episode of the inaugural season of From Scratch with Michael Rollman. I'm Michael Rollman, and I've spent the last 20 years in professional kitchens writing about and with the world's best chefs. The great thing about the cooking life is that you never stop learning. In this show, I want to go to the edges of what I know and then go beyond together with you, with all chefs, home cooks, and everyone who cares about food and cooking. From Scratch is a podcast about cooking. In each episode, we'll talk with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme. Today's theme is sharing. And not some kind of kumbaya bullshit about how sharing gives more to the giver than to the receiver, which is really a load if you stop to think about it. What I'm looking at today is how the sharing of food and everything surrounding food, the work of getting it, preparing it, and cleaning up after, shapes our lives. But first, the astonishing and unlikely rise of Ikai, the chef. My name is Ikai, and I'm the executive chef at the Matador Room. That's Ikai Suchtu, executive chef at the Matador Room in Miami. I can't even pronounce her last name. It's spelled S-U-U 
C-T-U-G-U. Yes, it's a very uh, unique last name. It has four U's in it. And I'm the probably only person, my family, the only people have it on the world, as a worldwide. Before scheming her way into a career in America, she grew up in the coastal town of Marson, Turkey, the daughter of a woman who was the chef restaurateur of a tiny restaurant there. It could fit about maximum 15 people. It's a very family-oriented uh, the meal is, it's more like a self-serve. It's like an open buffet. So my mom will go there and at three, four o'clock in the morning, she starts cooking from scratch. And by six o'clock, she have uh, breakfast-ish items are ready. And after that, she gets ready for lunch. And then it's an all day open. And also outside, the, she has a little bit of terrace out there and then there's a grill. And then she cook, does all the grilling stuff, which in Turkey, you know, is very famous. Uh, Turkish shish kebab and all of that stuff. And and I think she's really best at making it. I love it. I she still have it this day. And my mom is about 60 plus years old and she still works it through every day. And then she had this restaurant ever since I was in uh, in uh, middle school. And um, many times during my high school years, I would go there and be her busser, her dishwasher, pretty much clean the tables, go back to the kitchen and wash the dishes and reset the kitchen for her. But I never get into cooking with her. And who the hell would, looking at it from the inside, seeing how hard her mother had to work? I always run away from the kitchen because my mom had a restaurant and and my, her family had a restaurant. It was like a family business for them. But uh, as I was a little child seeing their lifestyle and I always promised myself that I will not get into cooking. I will not get into food or the restaurant world or, you know, servicing because I thought they never had a quality life. They always had to be at work. And I remember many nights that I was go, I would go home alone and trying to do my homework and there's no parents and who is taking care of me. I'm like, okay, then no homework and I watch TV. So I didn't want to be in debt and I had a different dreams. That's why I like my childhood was like, every time my mom asked me to come to the kitchen and she would show me something to cook, I would run away and would go to the street and just play games and, so that I don't get that stick to me. Uh, I was very stubborn and eager to not to be in the kitchen. Very much so. I mean... Yeah, and it look at me now. <laughs> it was a bumpy beginning, as you'd expect of someone faking it till they're making it. Her first job was as a food runner at the Marriott Hutchinson Island Beach Resort Golf and Marina. She spent two days running food in the dining room, assisting waiters and understanding not one word. And on the third day, someone came to me and said that, uh, hey, we're going to have to take you off the floor because because of your language barrier, we cannot, you know, help you here, which I understood that would happen. And then I had a friend who was speaking Turkish. He said that uh, the chef wants to talk to you. I said, who's chef? And then he said his name. I'm like, what a chef? <laughs> and then he's like, okay, let me take you to the kitchen. And then he took me to my very first executive chef. I never forget him. He came in he said something I couldn't understand, so my friend uh, translated to me. Obviously, he saw my resume. My mom had a restaurant, and he, he thought that if mom had a restaurant, she might have to know how to cook or have to have to be in the kitchen, but he was wrong. Uh, he, he had a wrong philosophy about me at that moment. Um, so they put me in the kitchen. They're talking to me. I don't understand anything. They're showing me I don't understand anything. I felt so bad, and I felt like it was a moment for me. The, it was a big breakdown. I'm like, that's not what I came here for, to feel so little... I can't embarrass myself. I have to do this. With my little English, I put a few words together and I went to chef. I told him that I want to be in the dish room. He gave me a look like, what? 
Like I said, can you please put me into dish pit and I want to wash dishes. First, he thought that I was scared to being in the kitchen because, you know, when you, you don't have a language, you don't know what you're doing and that's an easy way to get away. And then it's hiding point. I'm like, no, I want to go in a dish room so I can actually learn. Because when you told me to bring a ladle, I don't know what ladle is. When you tell me bring spatula, I don't know what spatula is. And I went to, I remember I went to uh, one of those uh, stores and bought like a whole pack of a post-its. And then I start writing every single word that anybody comes to the dish pit. Hey, where can I get the pot or pen or rondo or, the, or, or bucket and whatever, you name it in the dish room that you can't find it. They will show me, this is the ladle. I'm like, ladle. I write it down, a word of ladle. What does it mean? How do you write it? How do you spell it? How do you read it? And how do you say it? So like all steps in one, re- on one piece of paper. So one paper represented one word for me. And then that's how I collected them. And in my room was like a rainbow. I have all kinds of colors of apostles in my room, even in my bathroom. Four o'clock in the morning, I had to get up and go to work. And then I was getting ready, brushing my teeth and then looking in my mirror. I'm like, oh, now I get the word. This, it was this one. And sometimes I walk in, in my room like a crazy person, trying to find the words that I know because I put it somewhere. So that three, <laughs> three months later, I had a bit of English on my own. Chef Ikai's idea to start at the bottom worked. She learned the language and kept moving till she reached her current post in the JGV restaurant, the stunning Matador Room, inside the Miami Beach Edition Hotel. It's a powerful space. You descend into the oval dining room, low light with lots of rich wood. The mood is quiet, almost church-like, with a matador's jacket on a stand where the priest would be. Meals are primarily served family-style rather than a la carte, meaning that many small plates are offered to be shared by the entire table. Family-style, is it's not for everybody, I'll tell you this. Especially someone who comes from the big family. Probably they have an experience of like sitting in one table, under the table, kicking each other, or who's going to eat the most food, or, you know, stealing food from each other's plate. Give me salt. No, like all of those fights, right? Family meal experience is really different for every person. I love it because I'm coming from a big family. I have uh, three siblings. I'm the baby. So we always had this small fights in the table. But there are some individuals that really hate that. It's not their passion. They don't want to sit in front of the siblings or parents or anybody, cousins, uncles, whatever, just sit there and get embarrassed or get questioned or had to explain themselves, right? They wanted to be comfortable while they're eating because that's going to be their recharging moment. So it is a little different. There is a lot of people like a la carte service because when you go to a beautiful restaurant, hello, my name is, this is this, I'm going to be your server whenever we're ready. Let me know what you like. We'll make it happen for you. And that's the happy moment for someone that likes to eat by themselves as a, from a la carte restaurant. But for people who is in the later ages probably feel that family meal is more important because that brings the memories back for them. And then they will love that. They will come in here. Maybe when they were 10 and later on, maybe they're 30s, 40s now, they come in and say, hey, remember we had this food when we were little, you were fighting with me or we were talking about this. There's so many memories and stories to bring it back as a connection. Family meal for me, it is a icebreaking moment. You get comfortable, you get together. And if you really enjoy being around the people that you love and you want to share what's happening in your life, maybe that's the time that you can actually speak about something, either celebration, bad news, good news, who knows? But that's the moment that you build in that connection. How does a chef think 
to create food for this style of dining. For me, when I come to the first thing when I come to the kitchen, it's not like, okay, what are we cooking today? But okay, we're cooking this product, but how are we going to serve this so that people can enjoy it and share from the same plate? It's really important of the presentations in here. The importance is the presentation and the flavors that you're putting together. And how are you going to display it on the plate? If you put a one little salad in the middle of the plate, no one's going to get be able to reach out to you. So you have to spread it beautifully, nicely, and then everybody equally can get something what's in front of them. Let's say you bring in a bone and meat, right? You don't want to separate that bone. You want to keep it together because that's how it allows you to get the beautiful flavor out of it. You treat it like that. But then how are you going to put one piece of meat with the bone in the middle of the plate and expect everybody to eat that? And you have, that's where the chef comes into moment and being creative of the cooking that meat and the slicing it beautifully and to make this signature something special as a sauce. You create some sort of sauce that is unique to you, but... But yet you get together with your family, you're slicing a beautiful steak on the bone, you get that the juiciness and the fat and the smell and texture and the flavor all together and you put in a beautiful sauce. And then the presentation of the plate, that's where the chef comes in a place to make that happen. For me, if I'm making something really small, uh, depends on the product and you're cooking, I have to make sure that there's a one or two, three bites that you, in one plate that if there's two people or three people can at least get one bite out of it instead of you sharing one little piece. So that's why if you ask to any of my staff members today, when I see the plates, they're like so tight and, you know, in a, in a modern way, the presentation of plates, everything needs to look so neat and tight and clean. I agree, but at the same time, you're serving to family style. You're serving more than one person so that it needs to be com comfortable. If I'm putting a salad, again, in the middle of the plate, and we're looking at each other who's going to get that bite, right? You don't want to create that moment. You want to be like, oh, great, I have this part of the plate in front of me, other part is on the other person's, so that we share that moment. Or you pass on the plates around, and there's still enough food to share. That's, that's in my head. When I see the presentation of the plates going out, I got to make sure that every person experienced that plate not only one person, and a fight for a second bite. <laughs> and those shared meals are happening behind the scenes in important ways between the staff each night, a staff of astonishing diversity who share their own family meal. I have from, most of them are Latin America. Uh, I have Colombia, Puerto Rico, Cuba. Uh, I also have Jamaica, Haiti, Turkey. <laughs> so when I first started in the kitchen, I worked with many people from different countries different backgrounds, and a little, bit, a little bit of English that I had, I tried to understand them and connect them. What is it so important for us to cook for people to eat? First, it's a job. But then, yes, with my non-experienced kitchen moments, it was a job. I had to collect my paycheck. But then uh, working with the different people in that kitchen and understanding their backgrounds and why they were here, I, I thought that I was given an amazing opportunity, and it was there for me the whole time that I never saw that. And I was run away from it because I thought there was a, a disadvantage of being in the kitchen. But then working with those people, them connecting together, we will hustle working together all day long, 18 hours at some point. And 18 a day, and we realized that we didn't need anything all day. We were feeding thousands of people. And then we would actually get one of plates to each other, put it on the, on the floor, like some sort of mat or seats, like milk crates flip over sit and then we each other will get the plate and then scoop it out from the pot. And then that will be our family meal at that moment. And that's where I'm connecting with those people, working through a hustle 
And then seeing the beautiful place going out there, but you don't have a moment to sit down and eat. But then eventually you sit down with those people and share that moment. And you enjoy the food because you work for it so hard. And that's where I get connected. Connecting with the kitchen, how I get to it, it was the people for me, not necessarily the food. It was the people that who made me fell in love being in the kitchen because we weren't understand each other in the, in the language wise, but we were moving the same way. We were thinking the same way. And then all of us had the same mission and same goal at the end of the day. And then we would sit down and eat together and we would feel so proud of each other that, yeah, we did it today and we made it this many food for that many people. And now it's our time to sit down and celebrate. Everybody, every time someone asks me who inspired to be in the kitchen, I don't have a specific name to tell you. I have all those people that I work with that made me fall in love with the kitchen. Before we left, Chef Ikai named the one person that she wishes she could share a meal with. I mean, if you ask me, what would you like to eat and who you want to cook for and things like that, I would say that I would want to cook the, the simplest food ever. Could it be tomato soup? Could it be salad? Could it be anything? And I would love to sit down and eat with my father because I'm connected to that and I know that this is not going to happen. So it's my dream. Every time I make things that my father used to like. So I feel like, okay, let's visit, let's talk, let's sit down. Like, this is it. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I might be really emotional about this stuff, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm very happy and proud of it because if I lose those emotions and connections, I'm not going to be who I am. I do know what she means. I was lucky enough to have had 45 years with my dad before he died and how he loved to eat, how he loved to share food. But it wasn't just the food, it was the people. As his good friend Stuart Eilers remembered at his service, Rip wouldn't even have gotten the grill going before the guest arrived because he knew that the sooner he got the grill going, the sooner people would be leaving and he wanted people to stay. How I wish he would have stayed so I could cook him one more meal, just as Ikai does. When we come back, I'm talking with the founding director of a school who has an experimental and unusual practice regarding food at her school. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> 
That's not how it goes. That's not how anything goes. Envy's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 1067 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to From Scratch. I'm Michael Ruhlman, and I reached out to Suda Sitaraman, who created the Trilock School, T-R-I-L-O-K, in Brooklyn, New York. Heavily art-centric, as we'll see, but what I found most fascinating was the uncommon relationship she and the students and parents have with food. I spoke with her by phone from Rhode Island, she and her school's media editing studio, with my producer, Jonathan. I'm Sudha Sitaraman. I'm the executive director of Trilok School. And how do you describe the school to, to other people? It's a progressive school. Progressive is overrated today, but um, in our terms, it is more think out of the box. We don't want the education to be as it was for our grandfather or their grandfather. I think our time is very different. The younger generation's time is very different. So... When we say progressive, we literally mean we have no grades in our schools. We took Annie, the play, but it's completely Brooklyn-centric. It's, it is written by the kids. It's visualized by the kids. So it has changed its name. It was a female, and now it's a male, Anthony. <laughs> so they changed the whole thing, but it is inspired by the Annie play. So, you know, and we put one act, and now we're going to work on our second act coming up. And the kids themselves write the play, and... They design the sets and they make the sets and they literally work hard on doing everything. But here's where the food component comes in. We also are very progressive when it comes to eating. I've seen in America, I've been in America for 30 years, and I've seen that very few occasions that people really share their food. We are big time food lovers. We grow our own food. We share our food every single day. Uh, we are an international school. We literally have families from around the globe. And we want to taste everyone's food. Tell me about your your personal relationship to food. Oh, my goodness. I, I love food. I am a Tamilian. I'm from south of India. I'm a person from Tamil Nadu. But I grew up in Gujarat, which is the west of India. That's where my father was a professor. And I am Indian Institute of Management. So he was a business management professor. And um, so we, every day, had these cool discussions you know, on the dining table. So food so this, was huge. Would this be, would, would this be in the evening? Um, this in the, the evening, evening meal? Yes, mm-hmm. in the evening and meals. What, mm-hmm. what was, for instance, a staple, what would a staple meal be? A staple meal will be, my mother was very creative. She was a teacher too. She didn't want to repeat the same menu. So literally every day we would have something interesting. Of course, we are coming from India, right? So the cuisines are countless. So we would have uh, meals prepared from different parts of the country. So one day it'll be Gujarati food, one day it'll be South Indian food, one day it'll be uh, Bengali food. How lucky. <laughs> yes. I imagine I imagine also that during dinner, when, when you're eating, that this, the talk and discussion of one another's days, what you're doing was an important part of the, the, the mealtime. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. It was a big part of the mealtime. 
that is where all of our feelings were shared. You know, uh, wherever, my mother used to say, wherever you guys are, even when we were teenagers, okay, we were having dates or going anywhere. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Bring your date, bring everybody. But dinner time, every single person should be home at 7, at 6.30, 7 o'clock. That was like, and then you guys can have meetings after. You can have meetings before, including my dad, who was super achiever. He was all over the world, but he would still make the dinner time on time. <laughs> so it was kind of very, very important for us. When Suda's first daughter was in school, Suda noticed some things at mealtimes that made her very uncomfortable. For me, one of the biggest uh, jarring thing that I saw with my older daughter, in the lunchroom, those kids would go, they are screaming their heads off, they are talking to each other, and then they have so much food that they go and take it from the counter and then go and dump it into the trash bin, even without tasting. So there was no talk around the food. There was no talk about the food. There was teachers were there, people were there, but it was just a mechanical job. Um, it was not a, an, a, an important factor. For me, food was important. And I see that people don't share food. They, they hold their lunch boxes and they eat and they don't even ask, can you eat some? Do you want some? I mean, that was not an, that is not bad. I'm not judging at all, but that is something that I think comes with being free and open about the food that we have and what we do with our food that we have. So for me, having a school uh, and not talking or thinking about food was not the issue, the thing at all. Because we live in a time of rampant food allergies and intolerances. How did she handle the parents? Because most of the people ask me, oh, you share your food. That means I have, my child has allergies. What am I going to do? I'm like, oh, great. It's an inclusive program, which means we know your child has allergies. And we know the other students also know that your child has an allergy. And we start talking about what is allergy. When they are two, they just hear the term allergy and they are being very nice to their neighbor's student. But as they get older, it becomes an immune system class. A biology class for the students, older students. So they say, why am I getting allergy to this food? What is making me do? What, what symptoms do I get? So that goes into the next level there. How did you, um, how did this policy of sharing come about? And did you face resistance from parents? And um, just, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And how, how does that, how does it physically work every day? It's a very difficult. <laughs> it's a it's a very difficult uh, thing to do. But I did it seamlessly. Is because I would speak at the tour itself. I know when they first come to see the school, I do tell them that we are progressive because of many, many, many reasons. And this is one of the biggest reasons because we do believe that um, whatever you put in is what you're going to give. So I want to talk to you about your food sharing. So the people started thinking, oh my goodness, food sharing, which means I have to bring food for 30 kids. I have to bring food for 12 kids. I said, no, you just think about your child and bring me food, um, uh, bring me food um, that is just for, you know, these kids that are here which means I want you to think about your child. Your child will need some protein, some vegetables, some fruit, and some starch. So think about that and just pack. But when you're packing sandwiches, cut them into 12 pieces. When you're thinking about rice, take 12 pieces of rice, spoons, you know, so that I can give it to the 12 kids. But believe it or not, we are in America. So most of our parents are thinking about similar things. And so we will have a second serve. We will have a third serve. So don't worry at all. Your child will be cared. 
but it was very shocking for a lot of parents. Some of them were like very happy when they started. And then after a point, they were saying, oh, this is, this is very scary. I don't know if my child is getting everything. I'm like, our teachers are paying full attention. They are trained to do this very organically. They were trying to organize as parent groups. You know, I'll bring this vegetable, you bring this, I'll do this. I said, why are you complicating things that are so simple? So let's just keep it simple. She kept the whole food program simple. And what she noticed was that the way children ate changed their disposition, changed who they were. For me, the food program is the highlight. And I always tell them about that because that's what is going to make your child calm in the school. I have 60 to 70 kids right now. You won't hear the sound at all. It is, kids are really relaxed. In fact, we had few public school kids that joined us. They're very jittery to begin with in the beginning because they came with lots of frustrations and anger and ideas. But then once they started eating our school, eating, sharing program, the, the, the toughest child became the easiest child. And she could, I mean, I wish I had done a scientist that was here and could write down all the, 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 the what do you call the, the data collection they could have done. It would have been really amazing to see how much our kids are at ease sharing food. If you share food, there's no snatching of scales or rubbers or toys or all those anxieties that people have about sharing. It's all very, very simple. It's like, huh. So you're, yeah. so you're saying that the sharing of food actually translates into different behavior throughout the day. Absolutely, absolutely. The calmness, the mindfulness, this was second nature even in America. I mean, food, we used to really cook together and we used to eat lots of time spent around food. But now uh, we are so materialistic, I think, uh, than being who we are, that we start running after time. And time is, is in you. Just take your time, eat. Don't run and eat your food. Don't run and take a snack bar and run because you have to be on schedule. How does it physically work? I'm, I'm for example, I'm, uh, I have a 10-year-old son at your school, for instance. What do I send him to school with and what is his lunch experience? You send what culturally you eat. Like I come from south of India. I make idlis and dosas and send my 13-year-old child to school. And the other kids are like, what is this food? They, in our school, they won't ask that question. They know she's coming from this country or her mother comes from this country. Her father comes from Ireland. And so they have these food that they bring. And so we talk about that in the lunchroom during the lunchtime. Who brought this food at, at the age two? It is even talked. And then by the time they get to 10-year-old is fifth grader, by the time they get to fifth grader, they would be talking to the others, you know, if they're a new student, they will be explaining to them what, what is happening in the classroom. So they just send the regular food, whatever their parents are making for them. They can either make it the day night, uh, night before, and they can bring that, or they can get up in the morning and cook and bring it. So it doesn't matter as long as the child knows. In fact, as they get to third grade and fourth grade, we ask the kids to pack their own lunches so that they can know what is going into their lunchbox and they can come and talk about what they brought today. And so that really becomes the most amazing learning ground for them. And she's expanding Treelock's program beyond the lunchtime hour. Food is interwoven into the fabric of the school, as it is in life, not simply a period like history or math. So right now, 
um, we have around 60 kids. So we make produce to maybe feed 20 kids, but we are trying to multiply that into three times so that we'll have three farm greenhouses. So we will be able to get the produce to at least do salads and some vegetables. We won't be able to do rice and we won't be able to do pasta dishes and stuff yet, but maybe at some point, you know, the way we are going, that might happen. Even the school's pet turtles and fish get in on the action. So when we tell the kids it's the poop of the fish that makes our food, they go like, what? But that is what the reality of real life is, you know? So, so it's... But I wondered if she noticed any friction from the intermeshing of so many cultures in an American school. I think um, it is, we are all at the end of it, human beings. And when you have a good point that you communicate well, it will come across and people will take it and they will accept. And they have accepted the food program in the best way possible. Yes, we do share food every single day. Yes, it, it is a new concept. But we do it seamlessly. It becomes, it's not my country, your country, your ideas, my ideas. It is our ideas. It is East idea. It is West idea. We all did sharing, but we just forgot somewhere in the line. And now we are rediscovering. We are coming back to it. That's what it is. What are, give me an example of some of the foods that, that kids bring in to, to share. Okay. Um, Okay, that's a very good question. We have sushi. I'm like, what all do I tell? We have sushi that comes. We have Korean um, uh, glass noodle dish that comes. We have, in one day, you will have all of this, okay? <laughs> and then you will have idlis that's from south of India that comes. Then you have um, the, the, the sandwich from America that you, it comes. Then you have... Um, a, a Indonesian mom that actually came and cooked for us and fed all of us some lovely Indonesian food so that she brings those. Those are like special kind of rice balls that they make, which is very different. So, so all these, I mean, in a day, you would literally have a variety, a sea of food. A sea of food. And all of the food is shared and enjoyed on wide silver partitioned plates, traditional in India, called tali. Thali uh, or plate is um, basically a plate that is with divisions in it so that you know that you're getting all your protein, you're getting your, your vegetables, you're getting your fruit, you're getting your starch, you're getting your, you know, any other vitamins that you need, you're getting everything in it. So it kind of divides and it becomes a learning plate. So we, people learn from that so that they know that they are eating all of this consciously. I want kids to eat consciously. I want them to feel, or even the adults, even my teachers. I tell them all the time, we have food topic all the time because we do want them to understand that what you put in is what you're going to give. So that's why we say no for soda. Not because soda is bad. Soda is bad because of, so you give the whole reasoning behind it. So then you know that they are, they are these are smart kids. These are our kids. So they will learn way more than what we can even imagine. Well, I'm, 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 I'm almost ashamed to ask what the, someone like me, who's American Midwestern guy would bring in, you know, what would they, what, what is made of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or the bologna sandwich on Wonder Bread and the bag of Lay's potato chips? So we will take that too. I do believe that junk food is equally important in life as much as good food. 
And if you don't bring me that peanut butter jelly sandwich that you're talking about, I will never know that that even existed and what that means or what it tastes like. And the more you're going to say no to junk food, people are going to want more junk food. So I'm not here stopping anyone from anything. In our school, one of the biggest philosophies that we teach our teachers is please don't say no to them. Say no only when you really mean a no and then stick to the no. So if there is a no, there should be a reasoning behind it. Uh, and the reasoning is that if, you, if you're eating junk food, what is it doing to your body? You know, how many peanut butter jelly sandwiches can you have? And what does it do to your body? And what are you missing? And what, how are you going to get that? You know, and okay, in this meal, you had peanut butter jelly sandwich. Next meal will be peanut butter jelly sandwich with uh, maybe a little bit of broccoli and maybe a little bit of carrot. Oh, who likes carrot? Oh, the rabbits like carrot. So do, am I a rabbit today or am I a, a broccoli kid today? So... <laughs> Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As our conversation wound down, Suda, on her own, brought up what I've long preached are fundamental facets of our humanity and our connection to one another. Two things that connect all of us, they come from the tongue, okay? The first is the language. If you go to any country and learn three sentences of their country and talk to them before you know they will give you everything under the sun because they think you're so awesome. You learned my language. You're like the best. So that makes you the best friends, okay? The second one is the food. The minute you say those things in the language, the food comes, the culture comes, the food, eating and talking to someone about what is your like about food and you start talking. Believe it or not, everyone will become your friend. As Suda said, two things that connect us all, and they come from the tongue, taste and talk, food and language. We are the only animal that cooks and the only animal that tells stories, and they are hardwired into our species. It became clear to me when I read a book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. It's by Richard Wrangham, a Harvard evolutionary biologist. In it, he theorizes that humans didn't become the most successful species on the planet because of a genetic fluke 
or the taming of fire. He argues that humans became the most successful species on the planet because we learned to cook food. When we cooked food, we were suddenly able to consume massive amounts of calories. Before we started cooking food, our ape ancestors sat alone for six to eight hours masticating raw vegetation. Once we started cooking food, we could get huge amounts of calories very quickly. These calories grew our very calorie-hungry brain. It changed the shape of our bodies. It made us healthy, so our genes spread. And then it did something really important. It changed our disposition. It changed who we were. Cooking food takes work. Someone has to gather it. Someone has to prepare it. Someone has to care for what happens after all the food is consumed. Someone has to tend the families as those gathering the food get the food. The cooking of food forced us to cooperate. If we wanted the advantages of cooked food, of all these calories, we had to work together. It changed us. And it did another thing. Because we weren't shoving massive amounts of raw vegetation down our throats, we were able to evolve nuanced vocal anatomy that allowed for nuanced speech, the speech required for language. We became storytellers, and I think we became storytellers around food. The ability to tell stories allowed us to tell each other where the food was, where predators might be. We were pretty low on the food chain back then, but language and storytelling helped us to survive. As my mentor, the writer Reynolds Price wrote, a need to tell and hear stories is essential to the species Homo sapiens, second in necessity, apparently after nourishment and before love and shelter. Millions live without love or shelter, he wrote. No one lives without the sound of stories. And so many of those stories we tell each other happen around food during the meals we share. We are the only animal that tells stories, and we are the only animal that cooks. There is something to be learned from this, and something to be lost for failing to acknowledge it. I really want to end this show with some cooking and a technique that I love in Indian cuisine. I was inspired by Suda, and I also want to end it by sharing some food with my producer. Yo! <laughs> Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much for letting me do this. It's a great technique. I've got some dal here, but the key here is the tempering. It's called here, uh, or tadka in India. And I've got some butter. I've got about a half stick of butter and a big pot of lentils here. And I'm going to cook this butter until it's brown and frothy. The butter's going to get nutty and delicious. Then all I'm going to do is add some raw ginger and garlic, some Indian spices, uh, two teaspoons of garam masala, teaspoon of cumin, half teaspoon of turmeric, one quarter teaspoon cayenne, the garlic, and an inch of minced ginger, and a big squeeze of lemon. First step is browning the butter. I've got about a half stick of butter here. As you can see, it's getting frothy um, and a little bit brown on top, and the bubbles are getting a little bigger. I can add my garlic and cook that. Get that cooking in the brown butter. I'm gonna add my seasoning, my spices, to the brown butter. Already mixing the ramekin. Let those bloom. Yes, listen to that sound, I love that. And it's getting so fragrant and it's beautiful, and then I'm gonna cool it down so it doesn't burn with a splash of lemon. Hear that sizzle again, and then we're done with the butter tempering, and all we're gonna do is stir this now into our hot dal, and that finishes it with this beautiful, fragrant, spiced butter. 
So the, the seasoned oil comes in at the end on top. Comes in right at the end on top. And this allows for great fragrance, great flavors. There's a recipe for it in my book, of course. Gave you a taste earlier of how plain it was, Jonathan. Um, and now we're gonna taste it, and you're gonna see how it has been transformed by these spices and the technique called tadka. Okay, so. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it got a little kick to it, too, at the end. That's from the cayenne. But it really transforms the whole dal dish, and it's a really great technique. Let's eat. Special thanks to our guest, Ikai Suktu. Interviewed in Miami by my producer, Jonathan Hawes Dressler. And thank you, Whitney and the whole team at the Matador Room. Thanks also to Suda Sitaraman and her talented and thoughtful staff at the Treelock School in Brooklyn, New York. Special thanks to our actress and translation expert, Verna Parlock. My new book is out now. It's also called From Scratch, but it's all about cooking and 10 meals that can teach us all we need to know in the kitchen. We'll have a link to it in the show notes and on my site, Rulman.com. From Scratch is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. The music, except for the cruise ship Mambo, is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. And listeners, don't worry. Season two of From Scratch is already under production and will be arriving soon in 2020. Until then, we'll be releasing several bonus episodes featuring full interviews with some of our wonderful guests. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale, extend your spine, remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.